Good morning. I'm glad to see you all here today, and I had the pleasure of, of bringing something to us today that I hope will encourage our hearts and challenge us to grow deeper in the Lord. So let's open up uh, in prayer. Almighty God, most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word sown now among us may take such deep root, that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of the life choke it out. But that as seed grown in good soil, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. So we're continuing this series called Build Your Foundation, in which we're reviewing and covering the, some of the core doctrines that are listed in Hebrews uh, 6. Uh, because the writer of Hebrews knows that as the reader, if we don't understand these principles well, that we won't be able to grow in godly maturity. Uh, it could become something like walking. If you, have you ever learned how to walk? Um, have you forgotten how to walk? Forgotten how to walk? There, there's some conditions and injuries that might have caused that, but probably no, because we do it every single day. And it's the everyday doing, the practicing of it, that we get better and better and better. It becomes second nature. Um, Can these doctrines become so common, so practiced, and so witnessed by us in our spiritual life that they become a second nature as walking to us? So to start things off, I get the privilege of taking what I think must be the most uplifting and fun doctrine. Repentance. Okay. So, maybe not on the surface, but by the end, I actually hope I can make a case for how beautiful and uplifting it can be. So here is the too long, didn't listen part. If you fall asleep, if you don't, you aren't interested, if you can't follow me, here's the coverage. Sin is deeper and wider than we often realize. Repentance is not a one-time event. It is critical to holy living. And repentance will tell us a lot about our intimacy with God. So last week, Steve concluded the message with a challenge, who wants more of God? Y'all remember that? For those who were here? Uh, if you stood up and proclaimed that sincerely, that I believe our Father really wants to, to make it come through. Because His heart is to mold and shape us into the complete and whole image of His Son. But, if He's going to do it, you better be sure He'll test the foundation and motivation and position of our hearts. Because He knows as a master builder that there's nothing we can take on more of if we aren't secure in our foundation. And that's why it's good to review these fundamentals because everyone who is walking with God in this season of his church needs to evaluate and reevaluate and reevaluate their understanding of what it takes to follow and be a disciple of Jesus. So we all know that repentance is at its simplest, turning away from sin. But sin is one of those words that can get us in trouble because uh, we often have our own definition, our own understanding of what it is, either from influence, like people who have taught us, or from experience. And so it doesn't always line up with the truth of God's word. Is sin being dead in our trespasses and enemies of God? Is it breaking the Ten Commandments? Is it breaking any of the other laws? Is it doing something, quote unquote, bad? Is it trying to control your own life or is it more? So the scope of sin is simple but profoundly wide. So to give us a good start, a good groundwork to keep going today, I actually want to show you a video that I think sets up the nature of sin that's going to help us keep going. 
Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia 
as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others, and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. So sin, basically failing, missing the mark, and our mark is being the humans that God intended for us to be. It's that living with complete dependence on him, that trust in him, that knowing that he is gracious and and more than able to sustain us and provide for our needs, is cultivating and stewarding his good gifts, delighting relationship with him and bringing him glory. Because that's how it started on page one in the garden. As they talked about, there was no need for laws because there was no sin. Man formed from the dust and his mate knew nothing but trust and delight in their maker. But the deception that led them to see and take for themselves set in motion the ever deepening fall away from God and its departure from our original design. The broader understanding of what sin is that makes it so much easier to see how far we fall short of the glory of God. Typically, we have our view of sin which if you hadn't watched that, you may have, which is this twisted view of of we can rank our sins and categorize them and make some less important and some more important and some worse than others. Um, We think as long as I'm not on that kind of sin, I'm okay. Uh, It's not so bad. But when we think of the sin as these degreeing, varying degrees of badness, we we really downplay and, and distort the fact that a holy and perfect and just God will not and cannot tolerate any of it. When a room in your house is a wreck, maybe you were a teenager, maybe you were in the height of your child raising years, you may have thought it was clean enough when you could just walk through it without stepping on something. But as you grow and mature, your, your idea of clean enough begins to change, at least for most of us. But our spiritual life is the same way. We can think that we are good enough or holy enough But God's standard is the guy who puts on the white glove, runs his finger across the mantle, looking for any trace of uncleanliness. Our sin, those things that are lesser than God's expectation, are what we do to control our lives and bring us pleasure and happiness. Whether that's through gaining power or wealth or influence, whether it's through seeking comfort and security on our own terms, or whether it's even doing good, but that one doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Because how is doing good sinful? It depends on how far down we look. 
If we try to categorize our own sin, we can do what the video said. We can, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is actually right and pure and best. But when a good deed comes from a heart that says, I got this, God. And you are about to be really impressed with me. Or if it comes from a, a self-satisfying, it just makes me feel really good to help those who are in need. Or if it comes from a self-serving, I gave generously and I got a nice tax write-off. It's the motive of the deed. It's the motive of the heart that only God can really truly see the depths of uh, that allows him to say, no, that's actually not what I intended. That's not what I designed. I make the point because we are good at deceiving ourselves. We're good at justifying what we do to make them okay in our own minds. And so we really just need to accept that we do will and will continue to fail and fall short, go astray and wander. And so we have no choice as children of God but to stay humble, to stay alert, and to stay repentant. Because the Christian life should be an ongoing change towards lowness and humility. And by that I mean like what John the Baptist said in regards to to his um, his witnessing the rising of Christ's ministry. He must become greater. I must become less. The longer we live with him, the more we show we can't trust ourselves and instead lean more on him in every way. But when we, when we remain proud of our abilities and our accomplishments and our quote-unquote goodness without recognizing the work that he has done in us and the gifts that he has given... We make more of ourselves and think that our efforts or our works or our status will somehow compel him to do something for us that we want or repay him for what he has given or done for us. But it's only by his grace, mercy, and forgiveness through the death, resurrection, death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that transforms us by flipping our script and enthroning him as king and not us. So as our king, what does he want? Does he want to be in charge and lord over his power? No. He wants the fellowship from the garden restored. But we as people, as well as those throughout time, are by and large very content to offer up some kind of sacrifice or gloss over our little sins in order to find some way of just staying in good favor and good standing with God. We miss the mark by lifting up blanket token prayers Forgive my sins, and then moving on with life. And the reality is that the actual thought of really turning away from any specific sin is just too much for us to bear. We like it too much. We like our sin. So why don't we often experience true repentance? In short, it's pride. We've either decided that what we do is just too much to handle, or we really like what we get out of it. Because true repentance can't be found in any effort to preserve self. When confronted with our sin, our natural response can be somewhat dismissive. Uh, you got me. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I had a stressful week. You know how I didn't mean it like that. You know how things are. You know. Even saying the words "I'm sorry," we feel like should be somehow a get out of judgment free card. You know. You see kids say, I'm sorry, and they walk on, and nothing ever happened. Are they sorry? Probably not. But the practicing, 
we hope we'll, we'll, we'll mature in them and grow in them. That's the same for us. If we just go, oh, I'm sorry about that, and just keep on going, it's not the same. As understanding what you've done, what, how it affects them, how it affects you. In God's perfect holy presence, the depths of our sin are truly exposed. And then our response quickly reveals who or what we've let rule our life. And in Scripture, we see the spectrum of how sinful people responded in light of their sin. The ones who were labeled sinners, who were avoided for being sinners, who were, uh, had no interest in measuring up because they had their own interests. They're the ones that Jesus went to. And they met the one who knew their condition and wanted to extend mercy. And Jesus said to those leaders who were calling him out on that, it's like, it's not the healthy who need doctors, it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. But the same leaders he's talking to had access to and taught the word of God. And yet, at best, could only do it in their own understanding and by their own effort. And at worst, could say all the right things and do hardly any of it. So to him, or to them, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to the people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Meaning that deeper and wider view of sin shows us how unfit we are to think we can categorize and rank our status without the revelation of God. This is a prayer that I thought was really strong from George Matheson. It says, O oh Lord, as long as I am apart from you, I am self-satisfied because I have no standard by which to measure my low stature. But when I come near to you, there for the first time I see myself. In your light, I behold my darkness. In your purity, I behold my corruption. My very confession of sin is the fruit of holiness. O oh, divine man, let me gaze on you more and more until in the vision of your brightness, I loathe the sight of my impurity until in the blaze of that glory, which human eye has not seen. I fall prostrate, blinded, broken to rise again, a new man in you because true repentance is based in a high view, a high esteem and value of God as sovereign over all holy and other set apart and unique, all powerful and filled with perfect wisdom. When our view of God is diminished, our need for repentance is often diminished because we don't understand how much pain and how much damage our thinking, our doing, and our saying does to someone else or ourselves. Furthermore, we don't realize it's an offense to God. Said again, true repentance is aware that any sin that was committed to any degree is ultimately against God alone. We can see this when, uh, in Psalm 51, 4, when David writes, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because his brokenness over his sin, related to the Bathsheba and Uriah scandal, allowed him to see that the offense towards other image-bearing bearers of God is actually an offense to God himself. The catalyst of, of our repentance is a grief. Uh, we either feel the consequences of our sin, or we know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. One produces worldly grief and the other godly grief, and only one of those satisfies true repentance. Worldly grief says, you know, you're sorry you got caught, or you're sorry to have to face the consequences. 
or you act sorry to make things feel better. Godly grief, you recognize that your behavior or thinking ultimately offends God. You seek forgiveness from him and from others. You make intentional effort to rectify and reconcile, and you go in prayer to be taught and led away from repeating it. And I'll give you just a second to decide which one is godly repentance and which one is not. You got it? Okay. Much like forgiveness and love, repentance is a decision and an action, not a feeling. If our repentance has not created a lasting change in our relationship with God, in our thinking, or in our doing, perhaps it's time to repent of our repentance. Because repentance is a requirement for holy living. It's not merely a key of conversion, but a consistent attitude and posture of the heart. It's a discipline and practice of letting God, even asking God, to reveal what's inside of us that's unholy. Admitting that he's right and turning from the unending ways that our being, our thinking, our doing, our speaking don't line up with his standard. Martin Luther once wrote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. When Jesus came revealing the heart of the Father and bringing fulfillment to the requirements of the law, he made that way to restore us, to reconcile us to God. But even in our salvation, when he draws near, it exposes what's still imperfect inside of us. There's a pastor named Paul Tripp who once said, The power of sin has been broken in Jesus Christ. But the presence of sin still remains in us. Even after conversion, we're still works in progress. No longer condemned, but under conviction, we either choose to quench the Holy Spirit, who is inviting us towards holiness, or believe that he is who he says that he is, the author and perfecter. Realize that we are not the God of our own life and turn from our sins again and again. What's fascinating about God, though, is the way he handles himself as a father and as Lord. And here's where things start to get beautiful. Because he formed you and knows you, he also knows what it takes to lead you to a place of true repentance. He knows the timing, the circumstances, the situations that will lead you to turn or come to the end of yourself where there's no other choice and decide if you're going to turn to him and draw closer. This character and heart of his are revealed in his word when he says that he is the Lord. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is for us and always will be. Even when we slap his face with our rebellion and fits of selfish rage, he still loves us. Even when we decide to do things our own way and fail to seek his counsel, his son is interceding for us. When we stumble in ignorance, his grace is extended to meet us where we need it the most. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. The very God who calls us to love our enemies has done that very thing by loving us. Romans 5 is a good place to go for that. When we fail to repent as children of God, what we really have is an identity problem. When we know who God has made us, we realize that we have a new identity. We are a new creation. We are co-heirs with Christ. And you read a lot more of those on the Who Am I in Christ handout at the back. But we're also warned in Scripture that we must renew our minds, not to be conformed to the world. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. We must die to self and not put on the old man with its selfish and sinful desires. Psalm 139 details the great care and thought God has for us and when he made us. 
And it also confesses the darkness within us that needs to be cleaned. The need for ongoing repentance is great. If we turn a blind eye to the wretchedness within us, we can read Psalm 139 and begin to think that God is one who owes us something because he thinks very highly of us and I'm doing pretty good. But if we only focus on our sinfulness and wickedness, we deny the good work that God wants to finish in us, that delights in finishing in us because of his compassion and graciousness. Remember that dirty home, the dirty room? Because Father God loves you, he's going to continue to shine his light into that room, into your life, and help you remove that filth and that sin. Because he knows that your life will bring him glory. Is the process easy or fun or quick? Hardly not. But consider Peter, 1 Peter 1, 7, where it says, You have been grieved by various trials, but gold is melted by fire, yet refined. And your faith is more value than gold. When tested by fiery trials, your faith will yield praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, it says, We also glory in our suffering, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. We are not intended to be cheap, reproduced works of art. Prints of art, even worse. We are masterpieces in the making. Timing, process, and toil will reveal a you that could not have been made any other way. But we must learn to yield, to remain humble with repentant hearts, and resist every instinct that we have to try to tell the potter how to form the clay. Romans 12, 1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. Because I'm the music guy, I have a song lyric I want to read to you too. It says, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours every single breath. And I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you've required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. So I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. And I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. Because it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. What is he calling us to repent of? What is he calling you to repent of? Ask him. And whatever it is, take him seriously. Because it's the key to the next strengthening of your foundation. It's the key to lead you on your way of more of him. And he loves it. Because more of him for you means more fellowship with you. And it means more of his kingdom revealed wherever you go. And it means more hearts seeking his will above their own. And it means more souls to love and delight in for all eternity. Let's pray. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and all secrets are visible. 
Cleanse the thoughts in our hearts and by the inspiration of your spirit so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.